Hello and welcome to A Place for Truth, where we bring together Reformed pastors and theologians for conversations around today's cultural issues. Enjoy the conversation. You have not come to a desert mountain. You have come to the living God. You have come to the heavenly city. Our theme tonight is recovering evangelicalism from both big tent gospel centeredness on one side and a tribalistic we might even say a reformed tribalistic reaction. We want to recover this through solid ecclesiology and a Catholic that is a small letter C Catholic spirit. Now there are two two ditches that we're trying to set the parameters for tonight. The first is this: Ephesians four, five, and six says we serve. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is a term that needs to be recovered in our day and probably in some ways has been, uh, it is the word Catholicity. The word Catholicity means universality, according to the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, or the Orthodox faith of the whole church. Traditionally, the more somebody understands their confession of faith, and I would say the more somebody understands what it, what we truly believe, the more somebody is willing to also partner and work with appropriately other believers. I say Reformed theology, far from setting us into little tribalistic camps, actually should do the opposite. We have good ecclesiology. We support our own churches. And thus, we can also know in a triage of how to work with other Christians, what things maybe we wouldn't work with them on, and what things we can appreciate fellow believers on. Our own confession, we use a 1689 Second London Confession, says, Every church and all its members are obligated to pray continually for the good and the prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. This is Article 26, they must also at every opportunity within the limits of their stations and callings exercise their gifts and graces to benefit every church. Also, when churches are raised up by the providence of God, insofar as they enjoy fellowship, opportunity and favorable circumstances for it, they should have fellowship amongst themselves for their peace, growth and love and mutual edification. That is the traditional Reformed Baptist understanding. Now, on the other side, the Webster's 1828 Dictionary describes tribe as a race, a family, or a series of generations descending from the same progenity and keeping distinct, as in the case of the 12 tribes of Israel, descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. Tribalism, according to the new definition of Merriam-Webster's dictionary, ironically just came out recently, is a tribal consciousness and loyalty, especially the exaltation of the tribe above any other group. Galatians 2.12, Paul admonished Peter for this. For certain men came from James, and he was eating with the Gentiles, Peter. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, one may argue the real issue here was the fear of man, but certainly it fell along tribal distinctions, where no longer was the one faith delivered for all, but the ethnicity or the tribes mattered more. Now, what we mean by this is this. We probably, and we'll get into this tonight, we could, we could be talking about ethnic tribes. We also could be tra- talking about in the day and age where we see on one side this washing down of the gospel coalition of many other evangelical movements, one of the reactions is to become confessional, become reformed, that's good. What we also see is maybe a tribalistic spirit where we become so strong on defining ourselves as Presbyterian or Reformed Baptist 
And those, those are good distinctions. We celebrate those. Where does it become where out of fear, that becomes the most important thing where we can't work with other Christians or we have to publicly try to separate in issues that probably don't matter outside of real ecclesiological structures. What we're talking tonight in one sense is what does it mean to work together? What does it mean to be Catholic? And yet on the other side, what are the pitfalls there in reaction to the ecumenicism or the broad liberalism? We've seen a number of reactionary movements. Are we in the middle of one right now or what are the dangers there? So to this end, that's our topic for tonight. So we have a, several streams that we're going to go down tonight. So with that, Dr. Kennedy, Ardell, if you would, do you mind sharing some of your thesis that we talked about in email? I'll try to do that. We over at Christ Overall during the month of November have been going through a consideration of evangelicalism. With regard to its beginnings in the not the not its origins, but the beginnings of it in the 20th century, coming out of the modernist fundamentalist movement and the defining of evangelicalism, which of course essentially held holds to the fundamentals of the faith that were published early in the 20th century, that came from the writings of a number of individuals across the spectrum, including men like B.B. Warfield and, and, and a number of Baptists and others, and that evangelicalism began to gain some significant coherence until the mid-40s or so, when there was a, be when there was a beginning of a, a rather narrow narrowing of fundamentalism. At the time, fundamentalism and evangelicalism were, were regarded the same, but there was a narrowing. And, and so in the late 1940s, evangelicalism began to kind of have a split. And Harold Locke and Gay and, and Carl Henry and others were involved in the, in the coining of the term new evangelicalism, which of course became, really became evangelicalism. And evangelicalism enjoyed a few years of coherence, cohesiveness, and solidarity, but that began to break rather quickly. And ironically, the institution that was founded, Fuller Theological Seminary, which was founded in the late 40s, to establish this new evangelical movement became the wayward child radically so that by the mid-1960s there were already a number of faculty members at Fuller that were questioning the doctrine of inerrancy and if there's any doctrine that coheres and brings together the evangelical movement it it really is the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture but that began to began to break, and by the 1970s, the mid 1970s, Harold Linzel published a book called "The Battle for the Bible." In the same year as Newsweek acknowledged or recognized evangelicalism as as uh, really at its high water mark, and called the year 1976 the year of the evangelicals, because of 
Jimmy Carter. Now, Jimmy Carter was a Southern Baptist. And if anybody knows anything about Southern Baptists at that time, Southern Baptists did not regard themselves as evangelicals. And Northern, and Northern evangelicals, which really were evangelicals sweeping across the Northern portions of the United States from New England all the way down to Texas, Dallas Theological Seminary and out West. Evangelicals and Southern Baptists were distinct groups within the American uh, nation, but certain individuals like Harold Lenzel, who was a Southern Baptist, regarded himself as an evangelical, but the movement itself was really much, a more, much more of a cultural movement. Well, ironically, that decade of the 1970s and then the 1980s triggered within the Southern Baptists a resurgence of conservative evangelicalism or belief, beliefs that were in harmony with evangelicalism, the same time as evangelicalism as we had known it began to fracture. And so what we saw then developing was this, this fracturing of evangelicalism into segments, fuller theological seminary on one side, and those who would run in their orbits. And then on the other side, Dallas Theological Seminary, Westminster Seminary, and others, uh, Gordon Conwell, they would be in, an, in another area. So the, you, we began to see some significant fractures. And by the 1990s then, what began to unfold is that the Southern Baptist resurgence began to dominate the scene so that by the mid-1990s, Southern Baptists were really flourishing while evangelicalism itself was languishing. And one of my theses that I've never written, but I've talked about with a variety of individuals and have tested with some various ones with which they have large agreement is that Southern Baptists now essentially have overrun evangelicalism and they have brought their heritage and their culture in large measure to overshadow evangelicalism so that one of the problems that we now have in evangelicalism and have had for a number of years is the history of Southern Baptists, namely in slavery, is now overshadowing all evangelicals including all Northern evangelicals, so that Southern Baptist resurgence has really overtaken evangelicalism. So in a sense, one could say we are all now Southern Baptists. And I say that tongue in cheek, but in a sense, there's, we, we feel that. But in doing so, Southern Baptists themselves are fragmenting and evangelicalism is fragmenting so that we have we have all of these little movements within evangelicalism, Together for the Gospel, the Gospel Coalition, and all of these were designed and intended to become glue that would hold evangelicals together. And so you have, you have among these groups individual prominent big-name uh, leaders who are not necessarily in agreement. So, for example, in Together for the Gospel, you would have 
a guy like Al Mohler, who's a six-day creationist, and Tim Keller, who's a theistic evolutionist, together for the gospel, but together for the gospel, how do you how are you together for the gospel when you have such a fundamental disagreement on the very origins of all things? And and I would say, and and I and I think that Al Mohler would say as well that the gospel springs out of Genesis itself, Genesis 1, so that, so that you have these competing ideas at the very top levels. And therefore, I never became at all attached to any of these groups because I saw how fragile those alliances were. And don't you know, Together for the Gospel has come apart. The Gospel Coalition is similar, and it's introduced a number of quirky things, um, and the and the tent has become uh, stretched so that virtually any anyone fits under that large tent now. And this is this is one of the reasons why um, Christ overall was founded, uh, because we we've seen that these other organizations have left a lot of things untouched not that christ overall is in is intending in any sense whatsoever to fill in those or take those places because our intention is not to do what they have done they held big conferences we have no interest in holding these conferences whatsoever and the reason for it is the christ overall is very focused on the on the local church and the importance of church membership and church participation, whereas these others became free-floating and disoriented the evangelicalism in large measure from the local church. In fact, the leaders of these organizations, the major players of these organizations, seem to have kind of just floated above the, the local church, so that the local churches have been left behind and have have been left in the wake of these. And of course, then you had the big Eva caricature that has been sketched. And, and there's a certain truth about the big Eva, but anyone who equates big Eva with evangelicalism, I think is seriously mistaken. Big Eva, I think, is, is the twisted sister of evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is still there but it's still there in individuals who are looking for cohesiveness that is going to not focus on personalities, but focus on the proper, that which is proper, namely the Christ himself. And hence, whatever we can do in, at Christ overall, we endeavor to do it, but do it by bringing people under the governance of the church, the local church, and acknowledging that we all have one Lord over all of us without featuring any particular dimension, uh, for example, within the, within the Reformed faith, whether it be, whether it be infant baptism or pedo-baptism, we, we want to acknowledge, acknowledge that we hold our beliefs, but we hold them in such a way that we don't diminish the significances of those others, but it's the 
it's the Reformed faith that we want to uphold in a very powerful way. Now, there may be a lot more that you'd like to uh, go after, Eric, but I'll stop there and give some others opportunity to uh, jump in there. Well, it's the only it's the only Southern Baptist here, I think. A latecomer, though, to Southern Baptist for sure. But I, I think your uh, your your analysis is really uh, apt. There is just how the Southern Baptist sort of uh, sort of took over the uh, the whole evangelical scene, and and then and then what what the Southern Baptists have had in their history really has become kind of that uh that iron law of woke projection in many ways that they've sort of projected out to uh, the whole of evangelicalism in ways in a real sense you are you are a perfect example of what uh i mean because you are in the very far reaches of the north <laughs> of minnesota as a southern baptist church but you don't really take part in the culture of the Southern Baptist culture. As a matter of fact, the Southern Baptist culture would be much closer to David's territory than your territory or my territory. But even there, of course, David in North Carolina is going to see a very distinct difference between the Presbyterian heritage and the Southern Baptist culture. But there's, but there's something about the culture, the cultural dimension that we, we need to recognize. And, and that's, been, uh, that, that's a problem that we need to, uh, to deal with in our evangelical realm. Ardell, I was just going to say, I think that was a sound and true genealogy. And I, when you first wrote it in an email, I've been thinking about it and agree. I think that's correct. I think maybe bringing it up today a little bit, uh, in my view, it's not just the impoverished ecclesiology, and I think that's been a problem in 20th century evangelicalism uh, for the most part for a long time. Going back to like, well, let's say Carl Henry and a few of the others, I think that those men, Reformed or Reformed Baptists, were strongly championing the idea of a Christian and biblical worldview. I know that Carl Henry certainly was. He wrote again and again about it. For some reason, and I don't know how to explain this, maybe you guys have a better explanation, but with this sort of in the collapse of this evangelical consensus, we have these groups like uh, the Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, Nine Marks, various others. There seems to be a, almost a reduction of the faith to sort of soteric Calvinism. And they, they seem to be um, uh, sort of concentrated on the five points. And those are good. The Bible teaches them for sure. But the Christian faith is certainly wider than that. And I think, and maybe this is on my mind because I happen to be writing about it and talking about it, but I think they often tended to lack a Christian and creational worldview. Uh, and I think that's one thing that led to their collapse. Uh, when some of these issues like uh, Black Lives Matter and cancel culture and the whole Trump phenomenon and just this uh, radically aggressive progressivism around us, when all of this arose simultaneously, they didn't really have the theological conceptual handle to address that. Uh, they had the five points of Calvinism, which again are true, but they didn't have the worldview capacity, in my view, to address these things. And that's what I think led to some also celebrity culture, which I hope we can get to in a little while. But I don't know what you guys think, but that's kind of my 
thesis I have sort of following on Ardell's excellent description. I would agree with you and and point to some examples, if I may. Not that I want to name names, but uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church, where we've been for a number of years, where we were until recently, is satiric Calvinism, touching very little upon worldview issues. So that worldview has been in large measure suppressed from the pulpit, perhaps not as much in the teaching roles in individual classes, but certainly in the from the pulpit. And when you get on online and you engage uh, and read individuals, Reformed Baptists that I read, for the most part, are satiric Calvinists. They never touch on the culture, and it's, and it's as if they're going through life as though life were just a, um, just a tunnel oh, no. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> that they go through and pass through, and they think egg-headed stuff about uh, Thomism and, and uh, all kinds of things, but they don't touch the, um, the culture. And life isn't a tunnel. Uh, life is life is much more like riding the open sea, and if you don't have a world, a large world view, you're not going to be able to navigate and negotiate these uh, things very well. And so they, so they never they never address the issues. They never address the the stuff of life. They're flying high in the sky, as it were, in the stratosphere with very lofty thoughts, mm-hmm. while the rest of us are attempting to engage the uh, the slop and the muck of this world. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think you're exactly right, Andrew. Isn't it interesting, this uh, intersection between culture and church here that we're talking about? Because, you know, as I see it over and over again in church history, and, and you see it with individuals, you know, even in your own lifetime, There's the challenge to think according to Scripture, to allow the categories that Scripture demands that we have to govern our thinking, but then to govern our living. And I think there's an irony here, uh, and that is that while at the same time there's a strand of what you're talking about, Ardell, regarding this unwillingness to address culture. Nonetheless, uh, the culture is addressing them. You can't hide from the culture. And, you know, it. so it's not as if they actually are living in that tunnel. They're, they're in their own imagination. Maybe they're there. Maybe they want to be there. But nonetheless, the culture comes crashing in, doesn't it? And you know, you think of Paul's summary in Romans 12, 1 to 2, regarding the Christian life and, you know, his imperative there that we're to not be conformed to the, to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. This is the constant struggle. This is the constant conflict. And so the problem, I, as I see it, is that the trajectory through American Christianity has been this failure over and over again, generation after generation, to make the church, the institutional church, your primary place of residence. And for pastors 
to preach a full-orbed, fully biblical understanding of the Christian faith, and at the same time, not to reduce the Christian faith to our hobby horses and our particular understanding of the Christian faith. There's a, there's a particular kind of irony here where evangelicals have wanted to concentrate on doctrine. And of course, the doctrine of inerrancy became very important precisely because liberals were denying the, the inerrancy of Scripture. They were denying all sorts of things regarding Scripture, the miracles, the deity of Christ. And in my estimation, what took place was kind of a circling of the wagons theologically. And while it was important to affirm the doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of inerrancy, even according to Warfield and Hodge, was actually not, you know, the, the central feature of the Christian faith. And so what happened is, you know, I, I think time and time again, we have to be careful about trying to defend something that we don't have to defend. And by that, I mean, don't, don't reduce the Christian faith to, to just this one particular doctrine or your understanding of it. And what I think has taken place is even in the right emphasis on doctrine, there's been a failure to understand the true nature of doctrine. This is one of the things that Warfield was, was getting at. So doctrine is not simply my understanding of the Christian faith. It's not something, the Christian faith cannot be reduced to my rational understanding. But time and time again, that's sort of the trajectory upon which evangelicals have gone. And the result is it leads to this tribalism. So, for instance, I work now at a school where it's predominantly run by and uh, attended by Reformed Baptists. I get along with Reformed Baptists. I can work with Reformed Baptists. Why? Because I have a real true sense of where the doctrine of baptism fits within the totality of the Christian faith. It's not my identity. In the end, my identity as a Christian is not based or rooted in my understanding of the Christian faith. I go back to something that Augustine and Anselm said regarding the Christian. The Christian has faith, that is faith in Jesus, seeking understanding. Any true Christian is, is doing that. And we, as Christians, have got to learn to give people space, time, to seek that understanding, work on understanding the faith, and not think that just because somebody has a different understanding of the of particular doctrines than, than we do, that somehow now they, they belong in another camp, an, another tribe, because that, that is the death knell of, of true unity. In my estimation, that, that kind of fills a little bit more of the picture. One of the themes we want to talk about today is this tribalism. Where do you see tribalism today? What is it? And if you want to expand on, like, how did we get there? What is the solution out of that? And maybe relate that to celebrity culture, to it, if, there, if you think there's a relation there. Well, let's come back to David's point about doctrine. Carl Henry, 
made a very important point at the Evangelical Affirmations Conference when he made the point that evangelicals must be known for more than apologetically arguing for and defending the inerrancy of Scripture. Evangelicals need to come to understand that that the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture is competing with another worldview. It entails a worldview, and it's in competition with another worldview, a worldview that is essentially, in large measure, anti-supernatural. And anti-supernaturalism has invaded evangelicalism. And so, from those days on, we really have two tribes. We've had evangelicals, and then we've had those who want to retain the, ta- retain the name or the designation, but who want to veer off and embrace a different doctrine on Scripture. And, and in doing so, they've embraced a different worldview. It isn't just a different doctrine, it's a different worldview. And so they treat, for example, this comes very evident when, when you deal with Genesis 1 through 11. They, break, they put a break between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. Genesis 1 through 11 is, is too fantastic. There's too, much, there's too much there that just, if you take it in a particular way, they say it's false. And so there's a worldview now that that is governing them, and it's tribalism. And they want to regard themselves as the as the evangelicals who who are the authentic ones, which is why they've argued so vigorously that Warfield and Hodge invented the doctrine of inerrancy. They didn't invent the doctrine of inerrancy. They were succinctly arguing for it, but they were upholding a doctrine that was there from the very beginning. But that's what happens when you have a tribe breaking off from the larger, the, the true tribe, so that they have to argue that the true, that the old tribe that they left is holding to a, a new doctrine. And so you have these, you have this split. Evangelicals since those days then is, has not been the same. And you, you read virtually any new commentary on Genesis, and you're going to encounter a different worldview that comes out with a very different doctrine concerning Scripture. And if you begin with that worldview in understanding and or expounding Genesis, you're going to have a different worldview with regard to the gospel as well, and with regard to eschatology and all of these things. So, that's, I think, where the tribalism begins. The tribalism has originated largely around, around that matter, but then you have individuals rising to the to the top, and there are many names that we could name. Tim Keller is one who holds to this kind of worldview, um, but there are many other names that rise, and and then tied in with these individuals are friendships, and friendships tend to squelch disagreements, and squelch disagreements uh, create uh, fantasies of unity. And I think that that's what we've seen, and the glue is coming undone. And, and so now we're, I think we're beginning to see fragmentations of these, of these things. 
I agree with all that. I think in addition to that, Ardell, that um, tribalism is sort of the conservative counterpart to liberal identitarianism. What has happened is you have identitarianism on the left. Uh, homosexuals can see everything only in light of their homosexuality. Uh, many women can see only thing in light of their femaleness. Uh, this is true racially. Uh, that's all false. We see that as conservatives. We should see that. But uh, our way of addressing this sometimes is to sort of attach ourselves to a particularly popular uh, celebrity figures. Sometimes they can be accommodationist figures who are basically giving up the faith or at least compromising the faith. Like, well, I mean, recently David French, for example, though he's not a, a ministry, but prominent people like that. Uh, more recently, uh, guys in the emergent movement, even the fellow that's in um, Phoenix now, the pastorate in Seattle, what was his name? Um, Mark Driscoll, a number of people like that. We can mention a number of names, but even faithful conservative men who don't want to be celebrities can generate tribes. I mean, John MacArthur, RC, the late R.C. Sproul, um, John Piper, various others, and I'm not blaming them for that. But I think what's happened with the combination of the low ecclesiology and uh, people attend the local church and say, well, my pastor hasn't written 17 books and he is, doesn't have a sort of a podcast millions of people listen to, and he's not on the jet setting, so therefore he's all right. But my the the real hero to whom I look is my guru. Um, that has contributed to it. And then rather than, I, I think the, the breakdown of theological consensus has meant that no longer are people committed to biblical orthodoxy and confessional Christianity, but rather to these gurus who actually become sort of de facto Roman Catholic interpreters. Uh, this is a severe problem, and it's a problem not just among liberals. It's a real problem among conservatives. I have long believed that Christian leaders don't have a responsibility merely uh, not to encourage celebrity status, but also to actively discourage celebrity status. I once heard uh, Jai Packer make that very point. He says, if anybody comes around here talking about the school of Packer, you're going to get a frosty response from me. I, I think it's that is a lot of what's going on today. And one reason we can't have the Catholicity is because of a commitment to sort of Christian celebrities, uh, some of them, again, quite conservative and Bible-believing, rather than uh, a commitment to a genuine biblical orthodoxy and confessional standard. And it's easy for people to follow after these celebrity slayers and make new celebrities out of the celebrity slayers as well, such as Carl Truman. And, and I don't mean to demean Carl Truman. I, not, not, I'm not saying that he's wanting that and yearning for it, but people tend to gravitate towards him and then elevate him in place of the ones that he's he's slaying big eva i think you're exactly right the celebrity needs to be needs to be killed does our culture's lack of attack on manhood also contribute to this so meaning we have these you know the phenomenon of jordan peterson the last few years where we say legitimately these young men even if they're they're christians and they're confessing Christians, they don't have great examples. All the, the former places of meaning objectively have been 
effeminized or destroyed or redefined, does that lead to a just a, a blatant making celebrities because you so, you, you want a father figure, you want yes. uh, it, it beyond even the, the the particulars of theology. Does that make sense? I think it does, and I think I think one of the things we have to see here is that there are a number of different ways to analyze this issue. Okay. We can analyze it theologically. We can analyze it historically. We can analyze it sociologically. And what we've got to learn to do is recognize that none of these lines or strands of analysis contradict one another. They they overlap and feed into one another. Okay. So, for instance, the term low ecclesiology has been uh, mentioned. Uh, American Christians have had a low ecclesiology since the early 1800s, okay? So this has been around for a long time. This has a long history. We can look at this from the standpoint of sanctification. We are to repent of our sin. That is the job, that's the responsibility of Christians. This is what we are about. And that means that we need to learn to look at ourselves to look critically at our congregations, look critically at our denominations, and to recognize that we have remaining sin within us that we need to repent of, not just as individuals, but corporately. One of the sins we need to repent of is our crass, rank individualism. The failure of pastors to apply the biblical text to the corporate entity of the church, you know, constantly just addressing the individual within sermons and thinking that the, that the biblical text is only applicable to the individual's personal devotional walk with Christ. The, the, by, the Word of God was written by God's people to God's people. It came through God's people. God has been about saving a corporate entity his covenant community. And, you know, we need to, we need to address that as, as individuals, but also as, as corporate entities. So we've got a sociological line of thinking. We have a historical line of thinking. We have uh, theological and, sancti- and sanctificational lines of thinking and analysis on this. And, and we need to uh, look at all of that and, and see how it, holds together. The last thing I would say is this. When you recognize that we are told that in Christ, all things hold together, all things hold together in Christ, we, we, we crave unity. We are meant for, for communal relations. Uh, we were not meant to live in isolation. So we, we seek unif- unification and unity. But in our sin, rather than trusting in Christ and the means of grace that he's established in his church, an institution, we, we resist that. We, we, don't, we don't want to sit under the, the, the preaching of a local individual pastor. Well, that guy, he's got all sorts of foibles, right? He's, he's got his sin. Yep. And you know what? Now, next church you're going to go to? You're going to find a sinner pastoring that church too. Rather than working at 
working with people and finding unity in what Christ has established, we find our own imitations. And and this is part of what's happened in the celebrity culture, but now it's happening within the, the tribalism. You know, what we're looking for is simply people who are like-minded in a narrow, crass way. Whereas when you are rooted in Christ and trusting in Christ, you can find you will recognize your unity with people who you don't necessarily see eye to eye on on every possible cultural, political, uh, or ecclesiastical issue. David, I think that's an astute observation. Robert Nisbet, a conservative sociologist, once said, "Community will always get its revenge." So if we if we deny the community of the local church, we'll find a tribalistic community. And particularly in this age, I think the social media have actually aided and abetted this. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with it, but I don't need to have that flesh and blood Catholicity and accountability. So I'll go online and find my own little tribe and my own community, and that will be my true community. Um, I think that's a severe problem and a much greater problem than many people believe. And having said that, I'm sorry to cut you off there, Bob. I apologize. No, no, that's all good. That's good. I was just going back to uh, as Eric was first started uh, talking about, you know, is it a, is it a father issue or are men looking for, you know, some kind of a uh, filling in some kind of a hole there, uh, you know, as they search out for a tribe and, and that's certainly possible. Uh, I'm sure it happens. And, um, some of it too might just be part of who we are as people. We we look for heroes, and we're we're just sort of wired that way. Whether it's uh, we're looking for a king or just a, a hero to lead. Um, I, I remember uh, I think it was Don Whitney had uh, said one time that you know it's good to have heroes in the Christian faith, but they should be dead ones because the they can't disappoint us. You know, and we know their foibles and we know their strengths and their weaknesses. And that, and that can have its downside, too, if you're too locked into one, you know, perhaps. But but at least, uh, I, you know, if we encourage our people that, you know, be careful to not make heroes out of the men you see around you today. Um, if you need heroes, look to the past. We could probably also make the point that, to use another imagery, uh, other than tribalism, which has to do with genetics, more genetics, um, we could put it in terms of echo chamber. People seek echo chambers. People tend to seek to hear what they themselves express. Now, there's nothing ultimately wrong with that, other than that if that becomes the governing force then we then we tend to gravitate only towards those who sound exactly like us as david was suggesting earlier where we don't actually engage others so that we can so that we can actually have a change of perspective wherein we really need changes of perspective echo chambers are are not good and and that's what i think people are seeking let me transition this maybe to some a friend of mine we were discussing once just kind of this this tribalistic hero worship that we saw in minnesota i'm going to speak for minnesota because that's where i live of john piper and some of the people that followed him who 
demonstrate his mannerisms, his hyphenations of a lot of words. I mean, it was it was almost embarrassing at times. I'm not saying all of them, but there was certainly a, a very clear set of almost this tribalistic approach. And uh, one of my uh, Presbyterian mentors said to me once we were talking about this, and he said, you know, without a confession, the pastor becomes the confession. So meaning if we're not as pastors teaching people to think biblically with a full worldview, uh, a reformed confession, we're not filling in the gaps for them for critical thinking. And so we become what they believe. We, they have to look to us for everything, which creates necessarily not just a tribalism of belief, but a personality or of identity. Now, let me let me transition it a little bit there. And I want to talk about Stephen Wolf's nationalism. Um, this is obviously a phenomenon, maybe. Maybe it's short-lived, maybe it's not. But certainly we see in the fallout of where our culture is and people recognizing the American culture as we're needing not merely to find theological truth, but out of that, like economic and, and family and all these other things that have been broken down. And certainly with where our nation's going, uh, we have seen um, all kinds of responses to that. One of those recently has been Stephen Wolf. And let me uh, quote here what Bob Dahlberg wrote earlier. The Stephen Wolf variety of nationalism is drawing a certain kind of Christian who is looking to bring in the kingdom from the top down. It appears in many ways an opposite reaction to wokeism, but similar methodology that derives its grounding from political theory, Thomism, and a broad reform perspective. It seems to assume a biblical grounding without proving it. How do we respond to those enamored by the power it offers? Now, this was obviously, this book came up in the last couple months by Stephen Wolf. I think it's called A Case for Christian Nationalism. I have not read it. I'll really admit it. I, I didn't have any real interest in reading it. I let other people read it for me and tell me if it was any good. Almost got universal, from what I could tell, support until... Andrew Sandlin, some of the guys that he works with, Brian Madsen and others, at least that I saw on the broad range, started to push back against this. Where does this fit into all this? And how do we respond to this? And maybe I want to ask Andrew first, since you've written a lot on this, so we're probably throwing up some of the red flags, or at least the real caution flags. I don't want to overly state maybe your concern with it. But how did this come about? What is this? this idea of Christian nationalism and, and what's the concern here? And does it fit into this broad conversation? Yeah, I think it does. I think it's part of a, a larger wave going on right now. Uh, in some ways, I think it's more of the explicitly Christian version of the NatCon national conservative movement uh, led by Hazoni and people like that. Uh, it's a real divide among non-Christian. Well, actually, that's unfair. A more broadly conservative, many of whom are Christians, some many Roman Catholic. I think this is a, a more narrow, reformed example of that. What I'm saying is I don't think this book could have or would have been written 10 years ago. I think there are certain historical situations that develop that cause writing like this. I'm not saying it's right or wrong either way, but I think uh, ideas have their historical moments. I, I do agree with Brian's. If you have not read, maybe somebody can put in Brian's review there, uh, the link to it. If, I do agree, obviously, with Brian's review. Good people might disagree. I'm sure they do. But uh, I think part of the problem is that uh, Dr. Wolf is writing uh, as a self-confessed political philosopher, and we need to respect anybody that embraces a Christian worldview and writes from that standpoint. But I believe if you're going to write about Christian nationalism, he very explicitly says he's not going to offer any exegesis or theology and doesn't profess any special competence in those. And yet he 
does make some rather strong assertions uh, based on a particular stream within that uh, tradition. He happens to articulate some things I personally disagree with being a Kuyperian. He's not. He made very clear he's not Kuyperian. Uh, he has a, seems to have a very strong nature-grace distinction, uh, the idea that the church is a heavenly body and the state largely an earthly body. Um, he professes not to believe in the two kingdoms theory, but certainly it seems at some points he sounds that way. Um, there are other troubling aspects of the book, and I think one of those is that based on what you mentioned there, uh, Eric, and that is, um, I know he mentions at least a couple of times, uh, troubling statements that indicate a uh, more of a top-down approach to um, Christianity affecting politics. Now, as Peter Lightheart, who also disagrees <laughs> with the book, wrote, we certainly believe in Christian nations, strongly believe in Christian nations. That's not identical to Christian nationalism, however, and we need to make a uh, a distinction about that. In my view, nations are Christianized uh, when the gospel is fully preached and every area of life and culture is gradually brought under the authority of Christ and King. As it relates to politics, it seems to me that is a very minimalist state and not a state that sort of enforces Christianity. Uh, I don't think that the sort of medieval Roman Catholic Constantinian order, and I understand their discontinuities there historically, but I don't buy the medieval idea. I don't buy the Roman Catholic integralist idea uh, that a number of folks like Rusty Reno at uh, First Things are embracing today. The return of the strong gods, by which they mean a sort of a strong union of church and state. I actually am closer to the Baptists and many of my Presbyterian brothers on this. So I, in my view, there are a number of problems, but I want to make very clear that in opposing the idea of Christian nationalism, I'm not opposing standing firmly against abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism. I've been doing that for many, many years. I'm just simply saying that is not the best, the right, or the most effective or most biblical way to do it. I would say this, too, that I've read Brian's, at least I think his first um, review of Wolf's book, and he quotes from Wolf's book, part of the problem that has existed in doctoral studies for a long time in America. And then with men who have, and women who have their PhDs, who did not, they didn't get their PhDs in theology, but they want to enter the arena of what is or is not Christian. But then they, they, they want to, they try to give themselves an out by not claiming to, to have this expertise in this area. But then they turn around and write something as if they do have an expertise in that area. On one hand, it's mind boggling, but it's not surprising. If you're going to claim that you're going to talk about something that is Christian, well, then you have to deal with the Bible and you have to do exegesis. And if you're going to do that at a high level of academic work, then you have to know Hebrew and you have to Greek and you need to know the history of Christian theology. And, and this is just one of our problems. And I, I was thinking about this earlier, but the whole the lack of knowledge regarding the history of the church and the history of Christian theology. So at any rate, 
it does not sound like a very sound book. And Matson's review is frankly devastating. If it's accurate, and I have no reason to doubt that it is, and based on the quote he quotes from Wolf's book, the book's an embarrassment. I was going to say, I, I think, again, it, it appeals to that, uh, that desire for power, political power, to, to step in, to, to take on the, uh, the current you know, political regime with uh, uh, you know, equal force, in a sense, and, and bring it in you know, through those means, rather than, as uh, Andrew has talked about, how the culture has changed through the gospel, as the gospel is fully proclaimed, and, and uh, the church uh, applies it to all areas of life and, and culture. Yeah, I think Aaron is right in his comments. I agree with that, Bob. Uh, reaction to wokeism. I think you have a lot of people out there that are sick and tired, and rightly, of the uh, dominance of uh, progressivism and it being rammed on everyone's throats, not simply offered as an option, but uh, being legally enforced. And so I think this is an example of, well, let's fight fire with fire. They're going to have their statism, uh, they're going to have their imposition of evil so let's capture the ropes of power and uh, let's they want to break the rules so let's let's sort of break the rules as it were and impose our version but uh, in my view that's not what historic protestantism for the most part has been all about it's been about uh, cultural reclamation which of course includes politics but uh, a term has come about in the last 25 years called civil society to uh, to separate it from politics that is the family and the church and education uh, and I don't mean public education, uh, business and so on, these elements of society, non-state, non-quote public elements, in my view, and the view of the school I'm part of, the reformational school, mostly if you gradually capture those and basically cap the, the role of politics is to keep the society free so that Christians can operate, can do these things, that it's not necessary to capture politics to impose a kind of grand political vision, but just protect life, liberty, and property. And if there are differing views. I mean, Stephen and others have the view that it's necessary to capture politics to have a really strong will to power and a centralized Christian order. I don't really see that in the Bible. As I wrote recently in the Bible, I see less with ancient Israel, and I don't believe that ancient Israel is some perfect paradigm for the new covenant. I don't hold that at all. But I do think the underlying elements of the Jewish theocracy and the arrangement is obviously one that I think God would <laughs> advocate, and that is sort of a top-up system, a system of, here we can use the term tribe in a non-pejorative sense, tribes that little by little are accountable locally and then move upward in an appellate system to to Moses. Almost sounds Presbyterian, doesn't David? Uh, sort of an appellate, appellate system. Whereas on the other hand, the empires are soundly uh, always condemned, whether Egypt or Babylon, these are these the centralized political power is always criticized in the Bible. And depending on how one interprets Revelation, um, I interpret it most, mostly in the past and referring largely to the Jews and the Roman Empire, but however one interprets it, this centralized political power does not come in for favor in the Bible. Uh, the Bible's, of course, Romans 13 is very clear that the state is necessary. I'm not arguing for a sort of pure libertarianism or anarchy or anything. The state is necessary in a fallen world. 
But the notion that uh, the state should be pounding people rather than having a strong church and a strong family and Christian businesses and Christianity pervading the culture, then we can pray, as is told, that the civil magistrate, Lord, help the civil magistrate to leave us alone so we can live a quiet and peaceable life and influence the world for Christ the King. That's where I think we should be placing our attention. The final point I'll make, I think what's happened is the church has not been playing culturally well for the last hundred years. And now all of a sudden finds out it's losing everywhere and wants to change the rules. It's like the team that's losing 47 to six, the football team at halftime and wants to petition the league commissioner at halftime to change the rules so that they get 15 downs and the opposition gets two downs. Well, you can't change the rules of the game just because you're losing. You need to start doing the, the work, the kingdom work where God's placed you. That's my opinion. When did the term na Christian nationalism or Christian nationalists come? Didn't it come in conjunction with uh, Trump's term in office? And if I, if my recollection is correct, at least for me, I didn't hear the term Christian nationalism coming out of the mouth of anyone who was advocating for it. But I heard the terminology coming out of people the mouths of people who were criticizing it. And it seemed to me that that in large measure, those critics were imposing on to us terminology that they deem that they dreamed up in large measure. And consequently, when a guy like Wolf turns around in a in a matter of two to three years to write a book defending Christian nationalism, I'm wondering if he's not going to regret rushing to do that, there are certain terms and very few terms that the world gets to hurl at us that we ought to take ownership of. In the first century, it was Christian, and Christian has stuck, and rightly so. The mockery turned out to be uh, an, ex an exact and precise mockery that has become uh, a sticker for us. But Christian nationalism is is one, it seems to me, that uh, we need to critique rather than embrace. And when these things come at us, it seems to me that we ought not to latch on to these things. One of the things that we need to make clear is that um, in theology and philosophy, everything reduces to definitions of terms. And so when I first heard the term, I thought, well, and, and this, this is one of the things I keep just pounding into my students. You have to constant, if you're if having theological discussions, philosophical discussions, um, or you're reading a book, uh, you have to constantly be asking either in your mind or the person with whom you're engaged in the, in the conversation with, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by this term? What, what does this term refer to? Isms are generally thought to be poor things, things we don't want to latch on to. Uh, an ism has a ten. we generally think of anything that has ism at the end of the word as taking something to an extreme, placing too much weight on it, uh, or to uh, an unjustified weight or importance. And I think Peter Lightheart's uh, recent comment was just spot on. Of course, we believe in, in Christianizing nations. We believe in discipling people so that 
yes, even entire nation states might come under the influence and the governing control of gospel truth. And of course, a lot of this emphasis on Christian nationalism or the the whole discussion around it uh, is now, you know, rotating around theonomy and theocracy. And we have the failure to recognize that, look, every government, according to scripture, is some form of a theocracy, because guess what? Everybody worships God. Every political thought or theory is the expression of a deity, what you worship, an ultimate principle, what you believe is true. Well, based on what authority? There's your God. It's not just Christians that believe in a God. Everybody believes in a God. They just don't call it that necessarily. They may not understand that that's what they're doing. But according to Romans 1, everybody worships. So it's either true right worship or it's false worship. If you're going to have a communal entity, you got to have a governing principle. You have to have laws. Where are you getting these laws? So ultimately, it's not an issue of theonomy or no theonomy. It's whose theonomy? What's it going to entail? That's a lot of thinking that seems to be missed by a lot of folks, I'm afraid. Yeah, I agree with that, uh, David. I think, Eric, the comment you just made there on the side is true. I think much of the uh, appetite for Christian nationalism initially is an understandable appetite, opposition to secular globalism and the importation of uh, sort of secular Western ideas all over the world. Uh, without any respect for national boundaries. I, though I oppose Christian nationalism, I understand that concern and I share that concern. Uh, but the response to <laughs> a godless globalism is certainly not a godless anti-globalism. Uh, one thing we need to remember is that um, there are global elements of the faith. God's moral law binds all people everywhere at all times, not just Americans. And the Church of Jesus Christ is a global body. And uh, we have a lot in common. Uh, in fact, ultimately, virtually everything in common with those to whom we're united in Christ. That doesn't, of course, mean the global, I mean, that national boundaries are unimportant, that we don't have a responsibility t- to our state or to be good patriots. Of course, that's, that's not true at all. But uh, we need to recognize that um, the problem of secular globalism isn't solved by. <laughs> Uh, a sort of a secular anti-globalism or a false anti-globalism. That's why everything must be governed by the word of God and not by globalism language or nationalism language. I want to ask a couple of final questions as it relates to this, and I I want to wrap them up a little bit together. Um, We deliberately, in A Place for Truth, uh, a couple of things that we did when we started this is every one of our speakers, Bob, Ardell, Andrew, and David, they're from different ecclesiological camps, and we did that deliberately, all of these men are not under 40 years old. We'll we'll put it this way. They're all above 55, Um, some closer to 55 and some maybe further away from that. We did that deliberately because we wanted to get on these podcasts and not have to do a lot of jockeying back and forth, inside jokes. We wanted to get right to the point. We did this because we wanted men on this who have not only fought these battles, but have anecdotal 
examples of battles fought. They've been in the trenches for a long time. They've seen these trends and they've seen other trends come and go. What Andrew Sandalin and maybe some of the others would you say to the younger generation of Christians, let's say under 40, where I know, Andrew, this last couple of weeks, you've, you've pushed back on some of the immaturity that you see within, let's just say, the reformed kind of camp. Um, as it relates to maybe it's Christian nationalism or kind of a, a new celebrity type culture. What is the solution here to all these things? I think a couple of things. Number one, uh, be slow to speak. All of us can be tempted to speak a little too soon. Um, one troubling trend I see is uh, actually, sadly, a new form of identitarianism, which is um, sort of very unflattering comments about you older generation. You Here are your generational sins, and we're going to stand up to your generational sins. And in some cases, the, the uh, accusation is accurate. It seems there's almost never a recognition of the generation of the sins of the person asserting the the older generation sins. So uh, for that reason, I think being a little slower to speak and criticize, though biblical criticism is is done in the right way, is is always appropriate. But something else, Eric, and I wanted to mention this before, I'll mention it just briefly. Church history and historical theology are not normative. The Bible alone is normative. But it wouldn't hurt some of these younger men to actually spend some time reading extensively from church history. And by that, I mean not just Reformed or Calvinistic history, but Lutheran and Anglican, and for that matter, also Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, not because they're correct, but I think getting uh, well-grounded in the history of the church and the history of doctrinal development will tend to create a little humility. Um, I read deeply many years ago, uh, for instance, uh, the well, here's just one example. The Eastern Orthodox defense of the veneration of icons. I don't support that one bit. I think it's dead wrong. But when one reads what these theologians said, one understands why many of them supported this without in any way uh, my endorsing it. So we're less apt to say, well, they were all just a bunch of dumb clucks and idiots and idolaters. Well, it could be that they were very, very wrong, and I believe they were. And this is true of the Roman Catholic view of the sacraments, which I strongly oppose, and we'll say that anywhere uh, and everywhere, but just don't assume that these were all God-hating people and our Lutheran brothers who disagree and hold to consubstantiation, different views of law gospel. But I mean, having a, a deeper knowledge of the history of the church will cause us to be a little humbler and a little less arrogant. Um, so I, those are two areas of... of counsel that I would give, and I'm sure my brothers here could give maybe better counsel, but that's what I would say. You know, add to that just to encourage them to avoid avoid a personal attack, an ad hominem that seems to come at times when they're challenged, and uh, it seems to go personal. Uh, and it's been disappointing to see uh, in some of the discussions. I would echo very much uh, both of those comments. I would also add that, first of all, you need to pay attention to what Scripture teaches regarding uh, what faithful preaching of the gospel looks like, sounds like, what is a healthy, functioning congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to join one, and you need to work within one, you need to serve. You need to not be looking around wondering 
you know, whether or not your particular felt needs are being met, but to recognize that what it means to be a Christian is to serve and not look to be served. I would also add that one has to wrestle with doing one's duties in life and focus focus on what your primary duties in life are. If you're not married, you're free to serve in the church in a, in a much more broad and uh, extensive way, in particular ways. But if you're married, your primary responsibility is to minister to your wife, not to try to have a following on the internet, not to engage in social media arguments, but to minister to your wife, to your children, and to not try to live your life out through technology and social media, but in a local place, because that's how God created life to be lived. I just returned from the National Evangelical Theological Society Conference in Denver. One thing I has struck me over the years, and it, it really hit me quite hard this time, in looking through all of the uh, papers that were to be presented, and of course, I can't make it to all of them by any stretch of the imagination. I, there are many that I'd like to go to and I couldn't hear. But um, as I looked through the papers and listened to some of them, it just struck me in a very new way, a very fresh way, that this, these younger scholars are taking on exactly the same topics that were being taken on 30 years ago. Each generation has to address the issues for itself. But at the same time, there are, there are two things that I think scholars and pastors especially need to keep in mind. When they take on issues that were addressed 30 years ago, they have to be humble they have to take a posture of humility and engage the scholars that have gone before them. But they also have to acknowledge now that they have 30 more years of accumulated knowledge that they have to grapple with so that every generation has exponentially larger amounts of knowledge that they have to grapple with. And this, this includes every field of study, whether it be history or science or sociology or theology. Um, and with the burgeoning expansion of knowledge of published materials, humility should de definitely be dominating when we take on those same issues over and over again that have been taken on before. And we ought not to think that we're carving out new ground, but I, I observe these young, young scholars and the tendency is uh, for them to, to act as though they are addressing something new for the first time. And of course they're not. Um, and th and these, these, are, these are all factors that we all need to deal with, but especially those who are working in fields of theological and 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 adjacent studies we need to be very mindful of where we are we are not the first to come and carve these paths through the wilderness uh, 
There have been many who've gone before us. And as a matter of fact, many who've gone before us may have may have cut the course as cleanly as it really needs to be cut. And maybe we maybe we ought not to be hacking at hacking out at trees and weeds and and brush. Maybe we need to be following in the clearing that has already been made for us. Ardell, could I make one point? That was so powerful. Uh, Eric, this will just take a second. What you're saying that reminded me of something that Professor John Frame said one time. It was so good. He said, there's a strong emphasis today in scholarship, not just Christian, to create new scholarship all the time. Say something new. Say something new. He says the problem in theology and biblical studies and so on is that oftentimes some of the best stuff's already been said, and there's not much new to say. Um, I think, and I don't say this because David is a big fan of Warfield, I'm not sure if there's been any substantive improvement on the doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy since Warfield wrote. I, I mean, there may be little areas here and there, but I mean, if you if you master Warfield on that topic, I don't think you need much new. And I have all the books on biblical inerrancy and met outstanding. So I think this notion that, you know, we always have to be something saying something new can be very, very dangerous. Because oftentimes in the attempt to say something new, we often say things that are bad, heretical. Having said that, I, I do agree that new situations and uh, uh, require, in a technological age, for example, new applications. But I don't think we need to be just assuming we need to be producing new scholarship about everything all the time. I agree with you entirely, Ardell. D.A. Carson made that warning to PhD students at Trinity. This is one of the things he regularly told us and other classes. This is the problem, the challenge of Christian scholarship, because by the very definition of, of what you accomplish when you get a PhD is you are supposed to be saying something that no one has ever said before. And of course, in biblical studies, uh, New Testament, Old Testament, this is a particular danger because because the scriptures themselves tell us that there is nothing new under the sun and the scriptures are not to be added to or taken away from i would also finally just say this too that one of the particular problems in academic work on in scripture and theology has its own version of tribalism in the sense that historical theologians can get myopic in their in their sector Systematic theologians get, get myopic in their sector, New Testament, Old Testament studies. If you're a pastor and you don't want to do upper echelon academic work at an institution, but you see yourself as rightly needing to have a lifelong learning trajectory, my recommendation is do not get isolated in any one of these four disciplines Keep reading in everything. Read in systematics, read in historical theology, read New Testament, read Old Testament studies. And, and this will make you a more well-rounded thinker. It will energize your preaching in, in new ways constantly. No, that was really good. I really appreciate that, David. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe just a thought there with uh, the academy and scholarship is that I don't know if it's there pressed, uh, maybe at the ETS or, or, or places, but I, I would wish or hope that the drive there is to write for the church, building up for the mm -hmm. church, yes, not just yes. to publish, 
not to get recognition in the academic world, but we want to write for the church. The church is going to be built up through the things that you you publish, you write, the books you put out. Let us draw near to the Lord our God Come let us go up to Zion Let us draw near to the presence of the Lord